Deep dive into the world of science with Nature Plus. From the vastness of the distant star systems to the intricacies of infectious diseases due to climate change, we've got you covered. Enjoy access to over 55 cutting-edge journals, breaking scientific news, and over a 1,000 new articles every month. Whether you're a seasoned researcher or just curious, Nature Plus simplifies complex studies. Plus, it's all available right at your fingertips on nature.com. Nature Plus, the key to unlocking the world's most significant scientific advances. Subscribe today at go.nature.com slash plus. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. In an experiment. Why is light so far? Like, it sounds so simple. They had no idea. But now the data speak. I find this... Not only refreshing, but but at some level astounding. Nature. Nature. Welcome back to the Nature Podcast. This time, a useful quantum computer. And how the therapeutic effect of psychedelics might work. I'm Nick Petrichow. And I'm Sharmini Bundell. First up on the show, Nick, you've been looking into quantum computers. Yeah, that's right. This week in Nature, there's a paper from IBM that claims to show a practical use for quantum computers. Now, you might remember that whilst there's been various claims of quantum advantage, quantum computers being better than classical computers, there's not been a huge amount of applications of the technology. But that might be about to change. To find out more, I caught up with Nature's Davide Castelvecchi, who's been writing a news article about this paper. Davide, hi, how's it going? Hi, very good. Thanks for having me. Well, it's great to have you here too, Davide. And so, just to get us started, I wondered if we could do just a little bit of a recap. What is the difference between a quantum computer and a more classical computer people might be familiar with? A quantum computer is very different in that it stores information in quantum states, which, you know, compared to classical computers which have bits that can be zero or one quantum states can be any kind of strange superposition of a zero and a one so they can be a little bit of a zero and a little bit of a one and it's only when you measure them that they end up giving you one answer or the other so that's one thing they have qubits they're called instead of bits and the calculations that you do are essentially physics experiments where you put qubits in some kind of collective quantum states. You have a number of qubits and you can entangle them so that they are all correlated and so on. And then you perform a measurement and the measurement gives you information about the thing you want to calculate. And so this week in Nature, there's a paper that is demonstrating what they think is kind of a useful application of a quantum computer. Can you tell me what it was they were doing with this quantum computer and what kind of quantum computer it was? Now, the quantum computer they use, this chip has 127 qubits, 
which at the time when IBM unveiled it was a record in 2021. They have since gotten to 433 as of last year, and they are expected this year to get past 1,000 for the first time. And what they did, I mean, the experiment they did in this paper is basically they calculated properties of some kind of abstract two-dimensional magnetic material. The specific experiment they did doesn't tell us anything new about magnetism or materials or physics in general, but what they feel is that it's an important, basically, milestone showing that this quantum computer has reached a level of sophistication. They have reached the level of know-how to get useful applications out of it at some point soon. So they're talking about within the next two years. And why was this particular 2D material state, why was this something that the quantum computer was particularly able to work well with? What they did is they simulated basically an array of bar magnets. So imagine the needle of a compass and needles of a compass, if you put two of them next to each other, they, they're going to feel each other. They're going to try to align or in one way or another. And when you have many of them together, the arrangements in which they tend to fall into can be very complex and very very unpredictable. Now, what I described with needles of, of compasses is a classical picture, but what they've done actually is a quantum version where each needle can point up or down or simultaneously up or down in, in some kind of complex combination of the two. Because these qubits are quantum objects and you can make them interact basically with the same rules that atoms in a material would, would interact, the quantum computer solves the physics for you. And that's why people are optimistic that you know, physics problems such as this one will be a very good fit, you know, a test case or a, a use case scenario where quantum computers can show that they're actually useful. And to what degree was this quantum computer better or more able to tackle this problem compared to a conventional one? Yeah, so what IBM told me is they don't claim that they've done something that is beyond classical computers at this stage. What they say is that they've reached a regime where classical computers struggle to keep up. And this is with the 127 qubit machine. So they expect that in a couple of years, when they start doing this kind of thing with the, you know, with more than a thousand qubits, that will be a stage where there clearly is an advantage and where you can solve specific questions that can be in chemistry or material science or even maybe optimization theory that would be very hard to solve otherwise. Now, as I understand it, one problem that's really plagued quantum computers is errors. And one idea has been to use more qubits to error correct, correct these errors. But you'd need many, many more qubits than that were present here. So how did they deal with the errors in this case? Yeah, so perhaps the, the most intriguing aspect of this paper is that they're claiming something that until very recently was considered impractical or impossible because they're taking a different strategy. So the long-term strategy for quantum computing is that you, like you were saying, you will need a lot of qubits in a kind of ancillary role to just provide error correction, to keep the error rate down. So that's a long-term strategy. But what IBM is saying is we're not trying to do error correction here. We're trying to have a more modest 
target, which is not to remove the errors, but to lower them. They call it error mitigation. So that's what they do here. And that's what they say should be able to produce useful results, even with a thousand qubits. If you wanted to do something useful with a fully error-corrected quantum computer, people are talking about maybe you'll need a million qubits. And so from what you've described there, it sounds like this would be quite a difficult technical challenge to deal with errors with only 127 qubits. How did they sort of manage it? So a lot of it is just steady technical improvements. And in particular, one metric here of the technology is that the individual qubit can stay in a quantum state for a longer time than before. And this allows you, when you start doing calculations, you start putting them into these quantum states. It means that they will stay in there for a longer time and that, in fact, you can do longer operations to put them in a more and more complex quantum state, which you wouldn't be able to do otherwise if, you know, as soon as you put a qubit in a state, it loses the information within a microsecond then you'll never be able to get to the stage of you know, simulating a two-dimensional magnet. And you've been talking to a lot of different researchers in the field. What is the sense you're getting from them about what this particular paper means? So the researchers I spoke with, they tell me that the claims that IBM is making are kind of brave, considering that until not long ago, the usefulness of quantum computer was seen to be as something in the distant future but also that they are backed up by solid evidence. And also that they are making claims that are substantial, but not completely outside of the realm of possibility. And, you know, while we've been saying that this is a potentially useful application of it, is this something that could actually be used right now? Could it be used by industrial applications or whatever to try and figure specific problems out? Yes, and there's a number of commercial entities that are already you know, discussing this with IBM. Whether they will actually get value out of it remains to be seen. But there's also physicists who are starting to use quantum computers to answer basic science questions. For example, you could start calculating properties of neutrinos, how neutrinos interact with one another inside the supernova explosion, which are things that I am told are beyond the standard techniques. But it's one of the things where even a small quantum computer could start giving answers. So I guess I'll probably be talking to you again in the future, Davide, about what's next for quantum computing, because I don't think this is the end of the story. But for now, thank you so much for joining me. Always a pleasure, Nick. That was Nature's Davide Castelvecchi. To find out more about the story, we'll put links to the paper and Davide's news article in the show notes. Coming up, exactly how psychedelic drugs work is a bit of a mystery, but now researchers may have found a key piece of the puzzle. Right now, though, it's time for the research highlights with Dan Fox. Some disease-causing bacteria congregate inside thick biofilms that shield the microbes from host immune cells. Now researchers have found that Vibrio cholerae, the bacterium that causes cholera, has turned these defensive biofilms into a potent weapon. The team grew a variety of human immune cells in the presence of Vibrio cholerae. 
they found that the bacteria quickly divided and encased the immune cells in biofilms, killing them within a matter of hours. Further experiments showed that the biofilms helped the bacteria to concentrate high levels of a toxin onto the surface of immune cells called macrophages, punching holes in the target cell's protective membranes. The researchers say it's not yet clear whether the bacterium uses these biofilms during actual cholera infections, but they could explain why people who have recovered from cholera harbour antibodies against a key biofilm component. You can encase yourself in that research over at Cell. The Arctic Ocean will lose all summer sea ice in the coming decades, even if drastic cuts are made to carbon emissions. Floating sea ice on the Arctic Ocean has been shrinking and thinning in recent decades as temperatures rise in the Arctic region. And so researchers have been trying to forecast how soon the Arctic will be ice-free at the end of the summer. To investigate the human impact on the Arctic ice, researchers analysed three sets of satellite observations including data from 1979 to 2019. The team compared the observation with climate simulations that incorporate human influences such as the amount of greenhouse gases and other climate-altering substances that are entering the atmosphere. The observations showed that human activity is already having an impact on Arctic sea ice, and the simulations predict that the Arctic could be ice-free at the end of summer in even the lowest emission scenarios, something that could occur as early as 2030. You can find that research in Nature Communications. Next up on the show, understanding how psychedelic drugs work. Psychedelics are a range of drugs that can be roughly grouped together by their ability to cause an altered state of consciousness. For example, MDMA is a psychedelic, along with things like ketamine, LSD, ibogaine and psilocybin. Now, these compounds are probably mostly thought of as illicit substances, but there's an increasing interest in them for their therapeutic potential in conditions such as depression, post-traumatic stress disorder and even addiction. However, there's still a lot we don't know about psychedelics. To start, they don't all bind to the same receptors in the brain, but despite this, when used as therapeutics, they seem to work in a similar way. One idea to explain this is that psychedelics may be reopening something known as a critical period, a time when the brain is particularly malleable and able to make new connections. For example, it's one naturally occurring critical period that makes it easier for children to learn new languages. In fact, a few years ago, a mice study in Nature showed that MDMA does indeed open a particular critical period, known as the social critical period, where organisms are particularly attuned to social situations. So the example I tend to use is, you know, when I was a teenager, you really had to pay attention to what your peers liked and didn't like so that you could make sure to get the exact right shade of acid wash jeans, right? This is author of that mouse paper, Gould Dolan, a neuroscientist from Johns Hopkins. And so this sensitivity to learning from your social environment probably is encoding things like how we fit in, social hierarchy, the rules of our social world. Now, if this is all sounding a bit familiar, it's because back in 2019, 
Gould was on the podcast talking about that paper. But how MDMA had this effect on the social critical periods still wasn't clear. Gould and the team had thought it had something to do with the mice being more attuned to social conditions, as MDMA is well known to enhance how social people are. But looking into this more in a new paper in Nature, that doesn't seem to be the case. So at the beginning of the current paper, we were really pretty surprised to find out that actually if we gave any psychedelic, so whether or not it has a pro-social profile, it's not that LSD or Ibogaine or ketamine are particularly pro-social as psychedelics, but all of them are able to reopen this critical period. If these drugs are all reopening critical periods, it could explain why they all have similar therapeutic effects. But then this raised a new question. How are they all doing the same thing, despite not binding to the same receptors in the brain? These effects are lasting for a really long time, well beyond what you would expect just to be encoded by changes at the receptor. And so given that, you know, the psychedelic effects were lasting 48 hours to four weeks after, we thought, well, maybe something is happening that is going to be encoded at the level of regulating the DNA transcription. Gould and the team identified a list of 65 genes that seemed to be involved when this critical period was open in mice. Of those, around 20% seem to be involved in regulating something known as the extracellular matrix. I like to think of it as sort of the grout between the tiles. I mean, my friends who study extracellular matrix in a more serious manner are going to hate that analogy. But just, you know, for simplicity's sake, you know, it sort of stabilizes those synapses and it kind of locks everything into place so that, you know, if you make a memory, let's say, you know, Ghoul and Nick met today, that memory gets stabilized and sort of locked into place because that extracellular matrix is sort of the last step of that. So the idea is, is that if you want to enable you know, cognitive flexibility, if you want to enable rewriting of memories or reconfiguring of habits or patterns of behavior, then degrading that extracellular matrix could be thought of as the first necessary step to get that loosening up so that you can change the memories and the synaptic architecture. This increased malleability of the brain structures could be what's behind the brain's ability to absorb more information and be more flexible during those critical periods. This could also help us understand how to use psychedelics in treating things like depression and PTSD, as Alex Kwon, neuroscientist from Cornell University, explains. So I think this speaks to the fact that a lot of the psychedelics they're not given like, you know, your normal medication where you go home and take a pill, right? They're given in the presence of other medical professional. And then often sometimes, particularly for things like MDMA, it's an assisted psychotherapy. So there are actually therapy going on while you're doing these substances. The implication is maybe you take advantage of some of these processes, but you're also guiding uh, the person and actually doing therapy at the same time. So that component could be quite important according to the conclusion of this paper. Gould agrees that these psychedelics are best used in conjunction with targeted therapies. You can't necessarily expect to see the therapeutic effects without both. The paper also suggests that the actual psychedelic effects of these drugs are important for the reopening of the critical period. This could be important as there are ongoing efforts to try and remove these effects from the drugs to try and take advantage of their therapeutic potential 
without the altered states of consciousness. And if you get rid of it, then maybe these compounds would no longer be useful for treating mental illnesses. But that, I think, remains to be tested and determined. This study is in mice, and there's a lot more that remains to be figured out about psychedelics. But for Gould, this work may open up the array of diseases that they could potentially treat by making the brain just that little bit more malleable. I think it's a pretty radically different way of framing how it is that psychedelics are having their therapeutic effects. And, you know, I think opens up the landscape of what diseases we might be able to use this intervention to treat, right? So right now, mostly we're focused on neuropsychiatric diseases with psychedelics. So most of the clinical trials are focused on antidepressant activities, PTSD, addiction. Those are the three big ones that people are trying to use psychedelics to treat. And this explanation suggests that, well, we can really probably widen that out quite a bit. And now we might be able to think about how we would use psychedelics as an adjunct therapy for a lot of different diseases, including, you know, the stroke, deafness, blindness, you know, so it really changes the landscape and, and makes many more diseases, possibly ones that we could treat with psychedelics. That was Gould Dolan from Johns Hopkins in the US. You also heard from Alex Kwan from Cornell University, also in the US. To find out more about this research, check out the show notes for some links. Finally on the show, it's time for the briefing chat. So, Nick, what have you found for us this week? Well, this week I've been reading an article in Nature about something called taurine and its effect on the lifespan of animals. Okay, now taurine sounds familiar. Sounds like one of those biological chemicals that I should definitely remember what it does. What's what's taurine about? <laughs> so taurine is an amino acid. And as you know, That's the one. amino acids are the building <laughs> blocks of proteins. And taurine is also well known as an additive for energy drinks. So oh. it's quite well known. But aside from its sort of use in energy drinks, as animals age they have less taurine in their systems and so this study has been trying to see what would happen if you gave aging animals more taurine oh okay so what was the kind of study set up so there was a couple of different things they did in this study so they looked at a few different kinds of animals so they looked at mice they looked at rhesus monkeys and they looked at sea elegant so little worm type thing and they basically we're seeing what would happen if the more elderly animals had a high dose of taurine. And they found that basically it seemed to extend the lifespan by a significant degree of the different animals. And it also seemed to largely make them healthier too. Is there any understanding of a possible mechanism? That is still not clear. Like exactly how it works is something that still needs to be sort of uncovered. And what we do know about taurine is that at the cellular level, it is sort of a protector of cells and it promotes the survival of individual cells. So possibly it's doing something to sort of make the cells better able to last longer. But for example, in the mice, when they were given the taurine, they had better muscle endurance and strength. And in female mice, they had less depression and anxiety associated behaviours and their immunity was better. So it seems like there's a range of different things that are being affected by taurine. 
But exactly how that works is still kind of unclear. But the overall finding of this paper, I can imagine that, you know, that there must be a lot of headlines, you know, about this being a magical silver bullet that's going to cure all ageing. Does the... <laughs> Does the sort of paper back that up or go go in that direction? So this is in some animals. It's not in humans. Humans are quite different. And some of the researchers interviewed for this article cautioned that aging is a very multifaceted process. Like there's a lot of different things going on when we age. It's not going to be just one thing that's going to solve everything. There's rarely magic bullets in this sort of thing. But it's definitely an interesting starting point and the researchers involved in this study are planning a very large clinical trial to see how this would work in humans. So there's maybe something here, but I don't think we've quite got that magic bullet yet. But that's so interesting, just the fact that it works sort of all the way from sort of C. elegans to rhesus macaques across that wide range of of species is fascinating and so yeah i'm going to be very interested to see what the results of this clinical trial are when they come out definitely it's certainly an intriguing result but i'm also intrigued by what you've brought (laughs) for the briefing chat this week charmaine oh very nice Okay, so this is something that's maybe not going to come as such a surprise to people who've worked in science, and particularly in trying to get papers published. I don't know if you've got an experience of this, Nick, but often when you publish a paper, you submit to a journal, that journal has submission formatting guidelines that says you need to have these kind of sections, this many words or characters for a title all sorts of things like that. Yeah, no, unfortunately, I am quite familiar with this. All the drafts of my papers are in a drawer somewhere. I never quite publish, but I'm familiar with the process. And uh, yeah, sometimes this sort of changing the format of your manuscript for submission can take a very long time because journals have very different requirements. And even minor things like word or page limits can mean that you really have to drastically change a lot of things to try and make it work for that journal so yeah i think a lot of people will be like oh yes this is definitely a problem (laughs) so some researchers have actually published a paper about this problem in biomed central medicine and i've been reading this nature news article about it and what they've done is they've basically tried to calculate the cost of how much all of this basically reformatting your paper every single time you submit to a different journal or, or get rejected and have to submit somewhere else. How much money, essentially, is all that time spent reformatting worth? Um, and the figure they came up with was, okay, in 2021, this is for papers sent to biomedical journals specifically, they've calculated 230 million US dollars worth of time was essentially wasted reformatting papers 230 million that is a, i mean it's not surprising but to see it all put together that's a large number and that's only a section of science as well so i guess this is a bigger number when you think about science writ large i mean that's obviously a huge amount of time and money going to waste. Do they have any sort of suggestions about what we can do about this? Uh, Yes, I mean, they have made the obvious suggestion, which is that journals should allow free format submissions so that researchers can spend their time on money on research instead. And they make the point here that a lot of these formatting requirements could be sort of hangovers from the days when this was all intended for print, which lots of 
journals aren't anymore. When you're sort of having to send your journal to press, you have a lot of specific requirements that you do need. There's also the fact that having something in a standard format for your journal might make it easier for the editor to initially assess, potentially for the peer reviewers to assess. However, you know, a big question is, does that work need to be done at the submission stage? Or is all of this formatting something that would be better off coming once a paper has been accepted, at which point, you know, researchers interviewed for this article say they don't mind doing all that formatting as long as it's after their study has actually been accepted. Yeah, no, I guess that's a good point because otherwise people are just spending all this time reformatting and then they may not even get the paper published in that journal and have to do the whole process again. Yeah, and one of the researchers interviewed said that this would disproportionately affect early career researchers because when people are more established, they might have a whole team who could sort of help out with that. I guess, though, as you say, like sometimes having these formatting can make things easier for the editors and maybe the peer reviewers as well. So do you think or does this article have any suggestions for how likely it is that journals are going to be receptive to this? Well, they've said that they're planning to launch an aggressive outreach campaign to sort of relevant organisations. They've got an online petition as well. But there might be some sort of compromise to be had in talking with sort of scientists and journal editors. One of the things that they recommend would be a sort of middle ground between totally free format, which could be completely wrong for a particular journal and really strictly formatted. So there might be, you know, something like a minimal structural requirement, like a total word count. And that's what people have to abide by or trying to make those kind of things consistent across different journals so that when you're sort of submitting to multiple places, you're not having to reformat. That would be really useful. But there's another quote in here from a sort of editor-in-chief of a journal who says that, you know, there are thousands of journals, they have different audiences and personalities, and thinks that it is often appropriate for them to have different requirements, particularly for things like word count. Interestingly, this is a Nature News article, but they also got a quote from Nature's journal team, those two things being editorially independent from each other. And the nature editor-in-chief said that the initial format of a submission doesn't influence the consideration of the manuscript, although nature does have formatting guidelines on its website. Well, I'm sure a lot of researchers will be happy to put a number on this amount of wasted time, (laughs) because I'm sure it's a feeling many of them have. So thanks for bringing that to the briefing chat, Sharmini. And listeners, for more on these stories, and for a link of where you can sign up to the Nature Briefing to get more like them, check out the show notes. And that's all for this week's show. As always, if you want to get in touch, you can reach us on Twitter, we're at Nature Podcast, or send an email to podcast at nature.com. I'm Sharmini Bundell. And I'm Nick Petra-Chow. Thanks for listening. Hi, I'm Daniel, founder of Pretty Litter. Cats and cat owners deserve better than any old-fashioned litter. That's why I teamed up with scientists and veterinarians to create Pretty Litter. Its innovative crystal formula has superior odor control and weighs up to 80% less than clay litter. Pretty Litter even monitors health by changing colors to help detect early signs of potential illness. It's the world's smartest kitty litter. Go to prettylitter.com and use code ACAST for 20% off your first order and a free cat toy. Terms and conditions apply. See site for details. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. 
I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. quince.com slash style.